you mentioned, and, and I'm not recommending that people take their 10 year olds out on ride alongs and show them dead bodies and stuff, but you were exposed to significant trauma at a very young age. Did you find yourself, what coping mechanisms worked for you as you got older? Were you able to really compartmentalize it and just kind of keep it in the, in the back burner? I think so. I, I don't know why or how, but um, generally things, you know, they're super sad things and tragic things and horrible things that occur, as you know, and I was able to not focus on them. Um, I remember my dad, <clears throat> one of the few pieces of advice he gave me was, you know, don't focus on the stuff, do your job. You know, you go to a fatal accident and you see horrible things or a shooting or some dead child you have a lot of things to do. You have a lot of notifications to make. You have a lot of responsibilities there. And so I think the fact that I focused on doing the job instead of dwelling on it, uh, the matter at hand, uh, I think helped. It might just also be a little bit of the function of my personality as well. I don't know. Uh, never drank to excess or anything like that. <clears throat> so uh, maybe I'm lucky to a certain extent that, uh, you know, I, I, I never really fell into like a, a PTSD trap necessarily, or, um, you know, got totally salty as a way of pulling away and stuff like so many people do. Um, so I, I was pretty lucky. I wish I had a better answer. Uh, might be nature and nurture. Welcome to the Transition Drill Podcast. Joining me for episode 108 is Gary Faust. Gary grew up in a law enforcement family. And though he tried some other job options after high school, he knew police work was for him and went to the academy in 1987. He eventually spent 27 years in law enforcement between the Garden Grove and Huntington Beach Police Departments. He retired as a lieutenant in 2014. But a couple of years before his retirement, he happened to attend a wine event where he actually learned about wine. He'd only peripherally been into wine before this class, but afterwards, Gary was hooked and dove headfirst into learning all he could about wine. He also happened to live near High Times Wine Cellar, a family-owned and internationally known wine store. But when he went in and asked for a job, he was met with resistance. So what'd he do? He volunteered his time. Today, he's not only an employee, but he's now the store's French wine buyer and regularly travels to France. Gary has an interesting story of finding a new passion and following it into a new career. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Here's episode 108. Tell me where's hometown for you? Where'd you grow up? So I'm an Orange County guy for all my life. Uh, I grew up in Santa Ana until uh, I was about a dozen years of age. And then uh, started to go downhill in that, that town a little bit. It started to get a little bit rough. So uh, my folks decided to move us to Irvine, which is uh, where I went to high school and, and uh, ended up living until I was an adult. And then most of my adult life has been in Huntington Beach. Big family, small family? So I've got two younger brothers, uh, a really intact nuclear family. My mom and dad, who've now passed, uh, they, were, they were great people. And then uh, just three boys is all they had. Never had a girl. And I was the eldest. So, uh, for all the good and bad that comes with just boys. 
depending on which parent you talk to is probably a good thing. Depending on which parent you talk to is a bad thing. There you go. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly. Mom and dad, what did they do for a living? So my dad was actually a career law enforcement guy. So he spent his whole career in the city of Santa Ana, which was pretty rock and rolling back in the day. He started in uh, 67. I think before they even had a police academy or, or a very irregular police academy at, at uh, Orange Coast College. He hit the streets before the academy. They gave him a penal code and said, go to it, kid. Go learn. Exactly. So he did that. He did it for 30 years. Uh, and uh, my mom uh, was like a legal secretary. And then she decided she wanted to get in the business. So she also found her way into Santa Ana PD. Uh, just uh, worked as a meter maid to get her uh, foot in the door. And then she ended up um, being an accident investigator as a civilian and then a sex crimes investigator. So I guess you could say it was probably destined for me to follow the footsteps. Did you know as a young boy that you were, that was where you were heading towards or when you, as a little kid, what was kind of taking up your interest in your time? Well, like most boys, cops and robbers is a thing, right? So, of course, uh, and then you know, I'd hear my dad come home and tell stories, and I was pretty intrigued by it. And aside from sports and all that, that you know, playing with your friends, uh, I felt at some point I would probably end up in that, in that career. Uh, it, it was just so fascinating to me. And then uh, at some point, uh, he ended up taking me on ride-alongs which was unusual because I was about 10 years old when those started. <laughs> so if you can imagine three phone books, so you could see over the <laughs> dashboard. Exactly. And, and seeing uh, stabbing and shooting victims and stuff like that, probably stuff that I shouldn't have been <laughs> exposed to that early, which might, ex you know, explain why I'm all screwed up now. Um, so uh, put hair on your chest. <laughs> it, it did more than I needed. Uh, so I, I did that for quite a while. And then uh, it only reaffirmed, you know, the, the desire to be in that career your brothers also following that? We couldn't be any different. I have one brother who's a propeller head. He's a computer guy. Uh, he's done that his whole career and he's been at one place, steady Eddie. Uh, and then the youngest one ends up being a chef. So a cop, an IT guy and a chef. Couldn't be any different. <laughs> From your dad's perspective, did he want or was he pushing law enforcement on you and your brothers? Never did. Never did. He always said, if you want to be a trash man, be the best trash man that you can be. And uh, so they were totally supportive. I think, obviously, he was proud that I followed him, uh, but uh, there was never any pressure. What about academics and sports as a young kid? Always a good student. Uh, I was in the what they called uh, mentally gifted minors back in the day. Now it's gate or if they even have it anymore. Um, and then I, you know, I played a little league baseball and those kinds of things. And then uh, up until high school, and then I was into volleyball and stuff like that. So um, moderately athletic, but uh, certainly not the star of the team kind of a guy. Nothing that ever came along that would have potentially been a diversion to take you away from the law enforcement path? Uh, well, I had a few jobs from starting, you know, from age 16, and I just kind of frittered away at this and that, and uh, enough to probably know that I didn't want to do those things. I did a little construction, worked in a restaurant. Um, I worked in a furniture store and this is really what ended up pushing me to make my decision. Finally, uh, I was doing well at a furniture store, doing some sales and stuff like that. And they said, Hey, you know, we'd like to think about moving you into some kind of a management role. And I said, well, now is the time I need to make that call. So I said, I got to try something else first. 
And so I did, and it, it stuck. Did you go to law enforcement right at 21? <clears throat> no, uh, 23. 23. I think I started interviewing probably late when I was 21. And then by the time I got hired on uh, and hit the academy, uh, I, was, I was 23. And what year was this that you went into the academy? Uh, I went in 1987. And you worked and lived or worked for the agency where you grew up. Was there ever any reservations about working for that city? Actually, I didn't. Uh, so uh, I, I thought about working. I apologize. In, you grew up in Irvine. You, right. Okay. And I actually gave strong consideration to being in Santa Ana, which is where my dad worked, but then I wanted to be my own man. So, uh, you know, for the people that loved him, it would have been a, a tall shadow. And then uh, for others who didn't like him, then I would have had to overcome that too, right? <laughs> so uh, I decided to... Um, Blessing and a curse to kind of follow behind either brothers or, or fathers. Exactly, exactly. So I decided to uh, basically whoever would hire me first. And uh, it ended up being the city of Garden Grove, uh, which ended up being a good thing. So it was in Orange County. It was a um, very active city at the time. And so uh, I was really glad that I started there anyways. The, going back to your dad, did he promote? through his time into a higher ranking position? So he was kind of a career sergeant kind of a guy, which lets me know that he was smarter than I was because I promoted above that, as I think you did too. Uh, to me, the best job in police, the police world is probably that first level supervision where you still have some active involvement while supervising others. So uh, he stayed there. He was probably a sergeant for 20 years and loved every minute of it. What I was getting at is I came into supervision later in my career. I almost, one of the regrets that I have is not kind of taking that leap sooner because you kind of get into that mindset. Oh, I still want to be a worker bee or I want right. to, you know, but you can actually do a lot of good for an organization. And from your dad's perspective, was he encouraging you to promote or did that kind of come on your own? Kind of came on my own. It had nothing to do with my dad. Um, Although we were both briefly working together at the same time. In fact, we did some high-risk car stops when I found stolen vehicles and trailed them into Santa Ana. Uh, it was kind of cool for us doing, you know, working together on the street. Um, he really, he was pretty hands-off. So, um, as I mentioned, not really encouraging me or pushing me to be a police officer. And then... He wasn't the kind of guy to give me career advice either or to say, hey, you really need to promote or anything like that. My folks were just both very supportive people and um, would have been happy with whatever I chose. So probably could have been more hands-on in some ways and giving advice and all that stuff, but it's just the way it was. Did you know going in the door that that was going to be a career for you? I thought it was. Yeah, I thought it was. It, it wasn't a job. I thought it's a true vocation, a, a, a true a uh, life-changing kind of a thing and that I could do good for others. And I felt comfortable with it right away. I felt this is a great fit and uh, it, it turned out to be so. Did you know, and I've asked this previously, so did you have a, a kind of a career path mapped out in your head for what you wanted to accomplish and, and did it <clears throat> pretty much go according to plan? I had no plan. Uh, it, I, I remember a guy in the academy who ended up being chief of police who, when they asked, what is your goal? He said, I want to be chief of police. I was like, wow, who'd want to do that, first of all, and then what vision to have? 
for me, I just wanted to get on the streets. Didn't want to be SWAT necessarily. Didn't want to be the canine guy. Didn't see myself as the detective. I just wanted to get out on the streets. And uh, of course that's where you start. So I was a happy guy. And, uh, and then I ended up, you know, getting special D's and moving around later on. When did the interest to promote come in? <clears throat> you know, by that time I'd lateraled to Huntington Beach PD. I did five years in Garden Grove. Then I went to Huntington. Um, I'd done several specialty assignments and then, you know, you start hearing it from peers and supervisors, you know, Hey, you know, you should, you should really promote, you know, you have what it takes. It'd be good for the organization and this kind of thing. And, uh, so I, I kind of begrudgingly did it. And the old adage that, you know, do you really want this guy or this girl to be supervising <laughs> you? Right. And, and that kind of hit home to some degree when you no saw one's it. ever heard that before. Right. Right. So when you saw some people who you didn't think were the greatest being promoted above you, that was a little bit of an impetus as well. You ended up retiring what year? Uh, I retired in 2014. At what rank? Lieutenant. Was there ever an interest to go higher than that? Or did you know that like, now this is as far as I want to go. I was pretty, I don't think I really wanted to go to captain level, which was the next level at our department. Uh, at one point, the chief brought me in and he said, hey, thinking about the organization and, and your future, you know, I'd, I'd like you to be one of my captains going forward. And I had said, chief, I see your captains. They're all miserable. I said, they've all got GERD uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't want that. And he says, you don't have GERD? And I said, no. And he goes, well, you know, maybe we could be not as rough. And I go, no. I go, I really like having the filter between you and me of the captain level. So I was pretty happy, and, and he took that well. I mean, it, it wasn't a, a, an antagonistic thing. Uh, he, he heard what I was saying, and so I was happy to retire at that level. Did you enjoy your career the whole time? And when I'm, I, I know this is kind of a loaded question. But in the sense that, was there ever a point where you seriously considered maybe not doing a career? No. I, I loved it from the minute that I jumped in there. Seeing all the, the things that happened, I mean, as somebody once said, you know, it's, it's like you're working in a, in a carnival and you cops get in for free. And it's true. I mean, the things that you see on a regular basis are pretty amazing, good and bad. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. And I felt that I had an aptitude uh, for the job. Um, was reasonably successful. And, and uh, so once I got in there, I knew it was going to be, you know, for my whole career. I really enjoyed it. As you were coming towards your end, did you start making active plans for your second career? It's kind of weird. It's, it's almost accidental. Um, at the time, I was an investigative bureau commander with Huntington. And um, just happened, I saw some flyer about a wine class at the Montage in Laguna Beach, which is a beautiful resort. Happened to fall my days off. I had no particular aptitude or any more desire about wine than anybody else, but I thought, maybe I'll go and look at the waves and have a little bit of wine on my days off, and what could be bad about that? And I did, and it changed everything. Were you and your, your wife into <clears throat> wine at that time? Not in particular. Um, we were... Just like anybody else, you know, probably just like uh, you and your wife or, or what have you, uh, no expertise, you know, occasional weekend away, you know, maybe Paso Robles, maybe Temecula or whatever, something like that. Uh, but it, it was nothing that I really thought that I would 
need or, or had a desire to uh, pursue. Um, and then it shocked me more than anything that all of a sudden I was falling down this rabbit hole. What, what specifically about that event what kind of really drew you into it? So it was really more of an intellectual thing, I think. Uh, over the two days, uh, I kind of learned that California wasn't the center of the wine world. And it kind of intrigued me. I go, don't ask the winemakers that. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and they, had, you know, we spent about 45 minutes over two days about California wines. The rest was France and Italy and Spain and everything else. So I thought that was kind of amazing. And at one point, at the very beginning, there was a, there was a blind tasting. They put white wine in front of all of us. And uh, they said, hey, who wants to take a stab at what this could be? And I, of course, had no clue. So I was keeping my mouth shut. And uh, this guy behind me, he goes, I'll try. He goes, okay. He goes, it's old world, meaning Europe. He goes, France, Loire Valley region. The grape is Chenin Blanc. Appellation is Vouvray. I call this as a 2010 Vouvray. I go, wow, what was that? That's pretty cool. I didn't even know what a Vouvray was. I barely knew what a Chenin Blanc was. Where's the Loire Valley? <laughs> Uh, so a couple things just kind of intrigued me and I go, you know what, this is pretty cool. I think I'll take another class. And then once I kept taking classes, the hook set deeper and all of a sudden I was super intrigued and learning and, and, uh, it's a fun field of study. If you think about it, right. You're, you're tasting wines and discussing them and, uh, it's not a bad thing at all. Was this class meant to be the, the stepping stone to get into the wine industry or merely just Hey, come learn more about wine. Could be either. Uh, a lot of these people were in the restaurant business. Uh, I remember one guy had purple fingers because he had just worked uh, in Napa Valley, you know, making wine up there and stuff. So most people were in the restaurant or wine business already or retail, perhaps. Um, and so there were very few people like me who just went and said, oh, I think I'll, I'll go and have a glass of wine and check it out. So uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of, I was one of the outliers, you might say. And how soon or how far from retirement were you at this point when you started with these classes? So I was a couple of years before I could pull the plug. Uh, so let's call it, let's call it maybe I was 47 or something like that. And you could, in our system, pull the plug at about 50 if you wanted to. I had no, I, I planned to work at least until that time. Um, had no notion of working for anybody else. I thought like most in law enforcement that maybe I'd have a risk management career or, you know, do something that would uh, be smarter than that what I ended up doing because, you know, using my training education experience, you know, that I had was probably the smart play, but I ended up doing a passion play instead. When did you know that this was going to be your retirement gig? So at some point, uh, I, I learned about this place where I currently work called High Time Wine Cellars in Costa Mesa. And uh, everybody was talking about it. You know, oh, the staff's knowledgeable. The place is amazing and all this stuff. It's one of the greatest wine stores in the world. So I found myself going there and going to tastings to learn. And I thought, this is kind of cool. And so I, I ended up uh, trying to work there part-time after taking more classes and they wouldn't have me. Uh, you know, what's a cop know about wine? You know, why would we do it? You know, and, and I learned later that they thought that cops probably don't have enough flexibility to adapt to 
a family-run business without a lot of rules and regulations. And so they were a little bit leery for that, which I get. Um, but I persisted. Uh, and I still didn't know I was going to make it a career. I just thought, this would be kind of cool. I'll spend a day a week here if they'll have me get on the floor and, and get to know more about wine. And then uh, eventually I persisted enough and, and offered myself as an intern to work for them one day a week. And they said, wow, that changes everything. <laughs> and so we can get free labor out of you. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Who wouldn't take that? So they did. And so I ended up working one day and somehow did well on that first day. And they go, wow, that's pretty good. So I came back the next Friday, which was a day off. And at the end of it, they said, we like you. You're doing a good job. We're going to pay you. So I worked two free days. And then for the next year and a half, I was a lieutenant with Huntington. And then on the Fridays, and then sometimes more on the holidays, I would come in and work the sales floor. Were Once you got in on a, I'll call it a more permanent basis, did they have a specific course of instruction that they wanted you to learn? That's the funny thing about a family-run business. The answer is no. Uh, so it, I think, thank goodness, um, I was able to adapt from the, the massive rules and regulations that, you know, I was trained in to more of a, a figure it out kind of a, a scenario and it worked well. I liked the freedom of it. Uh, but really it was more like, kind of like when my dad started law enforcement, like, okay, good luck, <laughs> you know, uh, do your thing. And that's kind of how it was. And but to be fair, if I had questions about anything, uh, any product or any process, somebody was always there to assist. Uh, but, but basically, there wasn't a lot of structure. Uh, there still isn't, uh, which is good and bad. And so, you know, again, it's family run. And so you take, you take the good and the bad and almost all of it's very good. It's been very positive. When you came to your actual retirement date, did you know that you had a a full-time or a guaranteed job there? I did. Uh, we had had some discussions and they said, hey, whenever you can retire, we'll take you full-time whenever you want to come. And so uh, right when I hit 50, uh, you know, I retired and then I think I took a week off and I jumped in with both feet. What, for that period in, in your, your life, what were you, or what would, they wanting you to do? Was it merely just be a salesperson and kind of being a voice of advice for somebody coming in? Or did they have a long-term goal for you? Or did you have a long-term goal for yourself? No long-term goals on either of our sides, really. It was, let's see how it goes. And um, I don't think they expected me to do as good as I did. And maybe I didn't either, you know. Uh, but um it was more or less the job was to be on the sales floor and help anybody who comes in, you know, um, Hey, uh, Paul, you know, what would you like? And, you know, you want an Italian wine, I'll go help you with an Italian wine. If you want Cabernet, I'll help you with that or whatever. And then, um, you know, stocking as well and all that. And honestly, I, we still do that. Everybody in the store still stocks and it's good because otherwise, otherwise I'd be fatter than I already am. And so, uh, it's, it's good keeps you active and, you know, lifting those 35 pound cases all day long while you're selling and while you're doing everything else is a good thing. So, um, had no aspirations, uh, initially. And then at some point, uh, I, I started to get ambitious again and decided that, uh, you know, I'd like to be a buyer, but this is a place where some of the employees have been there since the eighties. And, 
uh, they don't give those positions away. And uh, fortunately, um, I ended up doing pretty well in, in, in my arena, and, and I was asked if I wanted to be the French wine buyer, uh, which is a very good job in that store. And of course, I said yes. Going back to the law enforcement bridge for a second, once you were out, did you ever have any, I'll call them fallback, whatever, whatever you want to call it, where like, oh man, I made the wrong choice. I shouldn't have left law enforcement this soon. Or were you glad the day you walked out and kind of put it in your rearview mirror? You know, saying it that way would seem like I was unhappy with my law enforcement career because I wasn't. Uh, I didn't end up burned out. I was very proud of my career. I was happy with it. I felt like I did good, um, enjoyed it, and I, I uh, don't regret a minute of it. Um, but I'm kind of one of those guys that I'm, I turn the page, I think, fairly well, for better or for worse. So if I'm done with something, then, then I move on. doesn't mean I don't still have friends there. doesn't mean I still don't think about it sometimes, or there's times when I would want to jump back in occasionally and do something. But... Um, once I left, I, I focused on my new assignment or job or chapter, and I didn't really look back. I had offers like we all do, you know, if you've been in the business long enough that, hey, you know, if you want, we've got this job for you and, and those kinds of things. But I never really looked seriously. I, I knew there was a fallback if I wanted it, but um, I kind of knew, just like with my law enforcement career, that I was happy. And uh, barring something strange, change in ownership or, or something, uh, I was, I was going to enjoy it. One of the things I, I like to talk about is the importance of not making, especially, you know, whether it be military veterans or, or first responders, not making the job, the badge, that be your identity. It sounds like for you, as much as you enjoyed the job, you, you struck a good balance in that's just my job. That doesn't define me. What things did you do or, or did you make an active attempt in your career to say, that's just my job? It, it is the hardest thing to do really, isn't it? Um, and everybody told you for your mental health that you should probably develop outside interests and all that and is very true. Uh, and I did have plenty of friends and do have plenty of friends outside of law enforcement. Uh, in fact, one of my regrets is probably not keeping in contact with as many people from my old career as I do, or as, as I should have probably, but I, I still, you know, talk, text, see them, go to lunch occasionally and stuff. But um, it's, I think I was able to separate it good enough, but sometimes you feel that you felt the, the pull, you know, you're getting calls at home about a case and all these things. And, you know, if, if you have informants, then sometimes that's the 24 seven thing, right? So it's easier said than done, uh, but I did my best to maintain some of that separation. Uh, and, and likewise, with this current career, it's, it could be a little bit consuming, as silly as it sounds, too, because you're getting calls and texts and you're going to wine dinners and stuff. And uh, I mean, it sounds like drudgery, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Horrible. Horrible. If you horrible. need a stand in, I, I know somebody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So. Um, but I did, going back to law enforcement, I did try to maintain other interests uh, and friendships to, to keep, it, uh, keep me sane. Well, you bring up a good point because you kind of put it on yourself to say, I haven't done as good a job to kind of 
maybe stay in contact with as many people as I could. But that also goes both ways. And I, I think back to some recent social media posts and stuff and where people talk about how you have to remember that the day you walk out the door, as much as you may love this job, you're out of sight, out of mind. And so it's, it's, a, it's an equal part in the sense that develop yourself, plan for your retirement, be able to walk out that door, but understand that as much as everybody's going to say, hey, we're going to miss you. Yeah. When you walk out the door, you're out of sight, out of mind, and it's, it's easy to kind of forget about you. That's a valid point. And even within a particular assignment, when you're still on, in the law enforcement career, I remember, you know, I, my, my track was gangs. And so I was, thought I was doing a great job, of course. And uh, I, I remember when I left thinking, well, nobody's going to be able to do it as good as I did, you know, false pride. <laughs> and um, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but they had a different set of eyes and ideas and they did some things better than me and some things that I thought they could have done better on. Uh, and then you, you translate that to leaving your career and, man, I thought I did a great job for the department and, you know, uh, you know, kind of a legacy and all this stuff. And you know what, the beat goes on and, uh, it's, it's a little bit tough to realize in a way that you're replaceable, but you are. Um, you mentioned, and, and I'm not recommending that people take their 10 year olds out on ride alongs and show them dead bodies and stuff, but you were exposed to significant trauma at a very young age, did you find yourself, what coping mechanisms worked for you as you got older? Were you able to really compartmentalize it and just kind of keep it in the, in the back burner? I think so. I, I don't know why or how, but um, generally things, you know, they're super sad things and tragic things and horrible things that occur, as you know, and I was able to not focus on them. Um, I remember my dad, one of the few pieces of advice he gave me was, you know, don't focus on the stuff, do your job. You know, you go to a fatal accident and you see horrible things or a shooting or some dead child. You have a lot of things to do. You have a lot of notifications to make. You have a lot of responsibilities there. And so I think the fact that I focused on doing the job instead of dwelling on it, uh, the matter at hand, uh, I think helped. It might just also be a little bit of the function of my personality as well. I don't know. Uh, never drank to excess or anything like that. <clears throat> so uh, I, maybe I'm lucky to a certain extent that, uh, you know, I, I, I never really fell into like a, a PTSD trap necessarily or, um, you know, got totally salty as a way of pulling away and stuff like so many people do. Um, so I, I was pretty lucky. I wish I had a better answer. Uh, might be nature and nurture. And, and that's the perfect answer because the one thing is we never, we can't compare ourselves to somebody else. I like to ask the question more because you might have thrown out something that you did that somebody just might not have been thinking of. But at the end of the day, I think that's the, that's the psychologist's job to figure out why one person is more impacted than the other. And who knows? Like I said, it may be nature and nurture, but I was just more asking if there were in the sense that, hey, you know what? I used to do this. And somebody like, oh, I didn't even think about that. So yeah. I don't think there is a wrong answer to it. I think, I think trying to live your normal life, going back to what you said before about having other outside interests or spending time with your family, you know, uh, getting away, 
completely removing yourself from the environment, going on vacations, just doing something different rather than just dwelling on the matters at hand, I think is helpful. So going back to the wine world, when you first kind of dove off the cliff and really got into it, was there a region of the world that immediately captivated you as far as wine? Well, like all of us from California, at first, that's the thing everybody thinks about and knows best, right? Um, but as I mentioned in that first class, I learned that they were not the end-all, be-all. Uh, and I soon found that my palate actually reflected an old-world palate, meaning less alcohol, perhaps, less fruit only, and a little bit more uh, complexity and balance being kind of the buzzwords. And so I found myself gravitating towards France, Spain and Italy, but especially France, which ends up being where the greatest wines of the world are, in my opinion. Uh, and so it kind of led me down that, that way. And so then I was starting to focus on that. And they noticed that I had a desire and an aptitude in that arena. And that kind of led to the next step, uh, which was uh, being offered the French buyer's job at high time. So uh, I think obviously I went down that rabbit hole of, of the complexity of France and the, and the greatest wine. So uh, it just, everything happened so organically. It, it was pretty cool. So going into the realm of being a buyer, what, what changed for you? I mean, it, it sounds, and I, I hate to overgeneralize it. It sounds simple. Just go be a, go, go buy the wine, but there's, yeah. there's gotta be so much more to choosing the wines than, and you know, what do you have to learn to be able to do that? So it's, it's, to your point, it's not splitting the atom, but um, I think you have to figure out what people want. So there might be things that I like, and I hope that my palate is good enough that it's going to translate to the people at large. Uh, but you have to be aware of what everybody else or what particular segments are going to want. And so there is floor space. There's a little bit of a budgetary uh, concern. There's representation in each category in every region, different grapes, different producers, getting to know what sells, what doesn't sell. And I saw some of that when I was just working on the floor before being a, a buyer. Um, and some of it's on the job and you make some mistakes, but it's, it's not really like a shoot or don't shoot thing or, or what have you. It's, it's uh, maybe something, uh, the inventory lasts a little longer on a particular item that you didn't do a great job on. You know, maybe you shouldn't have bought as much of that or it's priced incorrectly or something. So I think it was a little bit of on the job and listening to people, listening to customers. And, and I think that's where my strength has been is, is seeking out things that people want and realizing what are the must-haves. And so I tried to develop high-end uh, uh, clientele within the store and to feed that need. And so you know, it has an impact when you're selling $10,000 bottles, you know, yes, we're going to sell the, sell the $10 bottles too and everything <laughs> in between, but it doesn't take too many of those super high end ones. And then, you know, you start to develop a reputation as a go-to place for a particular genre, whether it's obviously I'm talking French, but somebody could say, Hey, I do a great job in Italian and I've elevated the game or what have you. So that's, that's kind of what I've tried to do. And you know, there's a lot of things that go into it, of course. Um, just thinking about it and, and listening. Well, I think you bring up a, a great point in the sense that you're buying for a store that's providing to a, a small geographic area. 
and understanding what the customers in that area want. Because I think one of the things that can easily kind of creep in is there is this image of people who are involved in wine have a pretense about them. And so I could see from the flip side, the store saying, this is the wine that's the best. This is what you're going to buy. And it doesn't matter if the customer doesn't like it. It's true. My wife would say that I'm pretentious at times too, because I'll turn my, my nose up at, at a lot of wine when we go out to dinner or something like that, uh, that I, I'll just grab a beer if, depending on the menu and stuff. So uh, this is a true thing. And I think you were asking something before that, uh, leading up to that, but I don't remember what it was. I was just talking about what, were there any additional classes or anything that you had to f- whether it was required or you just felt, you know what, I need to go learn this a little bit more before I actually go to France and be a buyer. Yeah. So I, I continued taking courses um, to deepen my knowledge and I read books and, and all that and traveled. Uh, and then, but really the on the job experience is really where it's at. You're surrounded by experienced people in the business. Um, you mentioned, I know you mentioned uh, like a local business, but we also, we sell throughout the United States too. And we're actually well-known. Some of my best clients are from New York, mm. uh, a couple of uh, Texas billionaires. Uh, I've got a client in China. I've got a great customer in Canada. So yes, we serve a small geographic area and that's the bread and butter because we're still a very great walk-in store, but we also have great uh, customers and clients throughout uh, the U.S. and beyond. And is it from the people who are out of your geographic area, are they coming through your website and then basically I'm looking for a French wine, the company puts you with them and then you start working directly with them to try to figure out what would be best for them? So there's actually a a search engine called Wine Searcher. And so somebody who has their favorite wine and they're sitting in Alabama or Georgia or whatever, they can plug it in there and see who has it and then uh, price compare as well. And so if we have the right product at the right price, a lot of times it'll lead to us and then that'll be, uh, begin a relationship. Uh, and sometimes, you know, I'll reach out to them and, hey, thanks for that purchase. You know, that was a nice $10,000 order or whatever it is. And then talk to them and say, you know, what's, what else do you like? And kind of start to build that relationship. And then when I start to get some of those cherries that come in that are rarities, I know, hey, you know, this guy, Bob, likes this one. And so every vintage that comes out, he, he's going to be offered these. And then so-and-so likes this other kind of wine. And so all of the, the greatest wines that I get, I almost already know where they're going uh, for the high-end ones. And so I think that's, that's been a, a positive thing for me in the store. Was it intimidating to go on your first buying trip and be in France kind of in a, you know, a new, a, a small fish in a big pond? You know, I wouldn't say intimidating, but I did go with a fellow employee who'd done it before. And so once I was asked to be the buyer, he said, hey, let's, let's go to France. And, and, uh, and so that, that was kind of cool to get an overview of, of some of the, the processes and the, the regions and meet some of the players over there. Uh, but every time I go to France, I meet new people and learn new things. And typically now I go about twice a year and to different regions and, and I'll tour properties and dine with the winemakers and owners. And um, it's an ongoing process, but I don't think I felt intimidated. Just like I don't think I felt intimidated in law enforcement uh, at the beginning either. Yeah, I realized that I didn't know much, um, but 
I felt like I could learn it. You know, I didn't think it was beyond me. Got the, got the, in essence, the, the backing or the support from your boss to get, we, we have confidence in you go forth and prosper. They've been amazing in that actually. Um, sometimes I'll tell the owner, you know, hey, I've got this large purchase I'm doing, you know, $250,000 or what have you. And she'll say, you're going to sell it? I said, yes. She goes, great. And so she, she and they don't really hem me in and they give me great freedom to, and enough rope to either hang myself or to, you know, to make it through. So they've been great with me and uh, it's worked out well. The freedom has been amazing. Um, I'm very aggressive in my buying. I perhaps even buy more than I should. (laughs) I'm not afraid to, and uh, it's worked out very well. For somebody looking to get into this, what would be beyond potentially being a wine bar buyer? Does it go towards now I'm just going to become my own store owner or distributor? You could, but uh, if you wanted to be a store owner, then you're going to need some serious capital to do that, right? And partners. There's no question. I mean, just our inventory at the store is a lot, a lot, (laughs) many, many millions of dollars, right? Um, So you would need that. You could also work for a distributor or an importer. Um, You could work at another retailer. So you could work at a restaurant, you know, you could all, all kinds of different things, but I think I found my niche. Is what you're doing, what's the difference between that and being a sommelier? It's a great question. Nobody understands. Uh, so to me, sommelier is the guy who, or girl, who works a restaurant in particular. Often, you know, you know they're the ones that are the snooty <laughs> ones, perhaps, right? But, you know, walking around with the, the, uh, the napkin draped over the hand and all that stuff and making suggestions. And, and I'm mocking them, but they do a great job. Um, to me, sommelier is particular to a restaurant. And when I was continuing my education, I could have chosen to go down that path, a service path, rather than what I felt was more apropos to what I was doing at the time and continue to do. So you, you can take different branches. There's different organizations and all that. So I feel like I have a lot of the knowledge of a sommelier. Um, I certainly drink enough good wine and, and uh, taste enough wine to, to know perhaps more than most sommelier. But uh, the people at the top of that, that game, like that you see in the movies, they're very impressive. They're very dedicated. Uh, they've spent a lot of time uh, finding their talents. So I respect that. But I just have a different focus, right? My job is to figure out what will sell source it, bring it in, price it correctly, connect it to my customers, and repeat. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a different function, I think, than theirs to a certain degree. We have a different business model, but um, yeah. So I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a song, but I have some of those skills. You mentioned it previously, the person who was able to take a taste of a wine and not only identify the the country of origin, you know, the the grape, the the terroir, I think is what it's referred to. Yeah. And I know I've seen that done in movies and in documentaries. Sure. Have you gained enough to where maybe not 100% of the time, but a good majority of the time be able to get in that ballpark? Sure. So these classes that I've taken, a large component is, in addition to book work, is tasting and tasting blind. And so you learn to recognize with a fair degree of confidence, you know, the things you're talking about. 
You don't always get it all the time. Even in the master Psalms, don't get it all the time, but you could do pretty well. That being said, I think it's a perishable skill. Like in our old, in my old career, you know, some of those, those things that you, you learn, you know, if you're not practicing it, then you're going to get a little bit rusty on it. And so for me now, I'm not as strong as I was because I'm not taking those classes at the moment. Now, my job is to identify typicity. From this region, with this grape, this climate, and this terroir, this is what I expect to taste and smell from, from inside that bottle. And if you're bringing me that, and it doesn't meet those criteria, and the price is not good either, it's not coming in the store. So now I taste for typicity as opposed to blind tasting. So if, if I've got that Loire Valley Chenin Blanc, it should have screaming acidity. It should have notes of quince and bruised yellow apples and, and all these things, right, that I look for. If it doesn't, it's not going to make it. We've all been in that position of somebody saying, hey, you know, taste this or whatever. You're going to smell this and, and this is what you should smell. I know in my, my own experience, and trust me, I am nowhere near any level of being able to, to speak educatedly on wine. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. How do you develop that ability to smell a given whatever it is? I think it's repetition and the classes that I had from a master psalm had a great influence. They helped me to kind of um, formulate a, a tasting systematic plan where I could pick apart a wine pretty well. And, uh, you know, it, you, you kind of know... Does it have this or does it not? Does it have this? Does it not? And so you can kind of go systematically, like in a heartbeat, just smelling something and, and kind, of, kind of dial that in. And lots of times I know what it's going to taste like just by smelling it right off the bat, just because of repetition and, and uh, tasting enough wine and studying enough. And then the same thing, then, you know, when you taste it, it's, it's confirming it or it's, it's going, well, that's... The nose doesn't meet the palate, and it's which could be an issue too. So I think it's it's just a matter of uh, practicing, you know, and and uh, getting good at it. And some people are maybe better at it than others. And I don't claim to be a super taster. Uh, I think I'm good, but there's people better. You mentioned previously that your wife might even joke that you're a little bit pretentious now, and you'll kind of nope. I'm just gonna have a beer. Yeah. The longer you're in it do you find that there's less and less of the entry level or lower level wines you're even able to enjoy anymore? hundred percent. It, it, and that is sounding super snobby. <laughs> it really is. So I'd rather drink, drink uh, quality over quantity. So my idea of enjoying wine is going with similar minded, maybe not people in the business who really appreciate the finer wines to a great dinner and ruminating over these glasses of and bottles of wine over a lengthy dinner. And as dorky as it sounds, it gives me great pleasure to do that. And uh, so, yes, the, when I go to a neighbor's party and they say, you know, I've got the $12 Kendall Jackson <laughs> Chardonnay. Uh, do you have an IPA? You know, that kind of a thing. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to waste, waste, my time with some of those things. I need to know lesser priced ones just to help people. And I do, and I taste them at the store, but on a personal level, no, the, the game is definitely 
elevated on that. You bring up a good point about the, the enjoyment, the social aspect of enjoying a nice bottle of wine over a, a nice meal, but from a purely learning about a wine or truly evaluating a wine, if this is your first time going towards a bottle, should you do it over food or should it just be the wine by itself? That's a good question. It could be either. I mean, if you're at a restaurant and a psalm suggests something and you're adventurous, why not? Most wine is meant to be paired with food. Uh, so that's not a bad place to be. But um, I think who you're with kind of matters too. So uh, I think you kind of play to the level that you're surrounded with sometimes. And so, you know, you maybe aren't going to learn too much. And maybe it's not your goal to learn, really, if you're, you're just going to grab a bottle with dinner and stuff and, and just enjoy it and not think about it like I do. So, and that's okay. You know, that's what the majority of people do. And most people, instead of aging their wine, will take it and drink it in the first week when it should have been aging for the next five or 10 years. And that's okay too. So it's whatever At makes them happy. At least let it climatize. There you go. <laughs> it's whatever makes them happy. So you could do it either way, really. Uh, there's value in just uh, having a glass of wine at home or, or with food. The documentary, documentary Sour Grapes. What impact has that had on the industry, the, the lingering impacts of it? You know, I still get questions about, you know, how do we know this is authentic? Uh, I had a guy grill me a few weeks ago on a, a first growth Chateau Margot. How do we know it's real? What was your sourcing? What kind of security features are on that bottle? What are the laser codes that are, uh, you know, embedded in that and stuff? And so he, he maybe jumped through some hoops which is good because I always learn when people do that. Uh, still, it's still lingering, uh, especially at the high end, which is where I play a lot. So, you know, those expensive bottles, there's, there's a reason people will forge those, right? There's a good return on the money. Uh, and so it's definitely a thing for me to be aware of as a buyer too, right? Making sure I source correctly, that I have confidence in where it's coming from uh, as, a, as opposed to some, Johnny on the street, you know, walking up in a suitcase or pops the trunk yep. on his car. Oh, Want to buy some wine? It happens. <laughs> Believe me, it happens. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a thing and, and, but it's good because people before were being duped. And I, I think now people had their eyes open a little bit and, uh, there's, there's still stuff going on out there. I'm sure of it. As an industry as a whole, did they adopt any new practices because of that? I would imagine though, that's not the first instance of significant fraud though in the wine industry true yeah it's been ongoing uh for quite a long time but i think that really brought it out into the open for the consumers as well um the producers have been the ones really who have taken means to do it you know they'll they'll put uh, uh certain capsules uh, that'll show you if it was tampered with, or they'll put something that showed if it was exposed to heat, then a little color dot will change. Um, or they'll put some microcode on some of the expensive bottles on the labels and uh, indicia on the corks, all these things to kind of combat that as well. So, but it's mostly the fairly high-end ones that have really done that because they were the ones that needed to. And I've had another couple other guests who are involved in the wine industry and one of the things i ask about because i think they're you're fighting the the stereotype or the not the stereotype but the perception of a real cork a synthetic cork or a screw top but i've had several of them tell me that 
you know, with a screw top, you can actually control everything in that bottle much better. What are you seeing in from the European winemakers? Are they adopting more of the screw top? I think some would like to, but the consumer's still not ready. I mean, there's two countries, Australia and New Zealand, that have adapted it in a big way, and 95% of what they sell has that. The lower end in the U.S. does it, of course. but you're right. You, it's actually better uh, for a wine, and you can actually dial in different screw caps that will allow a certain amount of air uh, ingress and egress to simulate what a cork would do because there's naturally a little bit of exchange that occurs in a, in a cork. And so you could dial it in specifically, but people are not ready for it. They, won't, they don't want it. They turn their nose up at it and stuff. So um, I don't see it changing in a big way especially for high-end wines it's just tradition and it's what people are used to you mentioned when you first went to that very first wine class and and they spent in the grand scheme of things a very small amount of time on on california wines as a somebody from california when you went over to france did you find that you had to kind of prove yourself a little bit more were they in looking at californians kind of the same way like oh you really don't even know wine not really. I don't think so. I've, I've never gotten that. And <clears throat> of course, they're motivated to sell to me, right? And, and to keep me happy. But I, I've never gotten that at all. Uh, they're curious about California wines. Sometimes the stuff they get is not of great quality. They get shipped over, so it's not a great representative. And I think that's changing a little bit. But uh, clearly, they feel that as a, as a country, for example, the country that I visit, most is they feel like theirs is the best, but I'm not disagreeing with that. <laughs> so um, as long as you've been in the game a long time, they have, as long as you're humble, uh, I, I think you're good to go. Uh, they've, they didn't look down on me uh, at all. I mean, it's, it's more of a knowledge thing. So the difference between when I started and now is, is significant. And so I'm sure they would look at me in a different way now versus then, uh, you know, you kind of prove yourself like in anything, right? Any, any career that you have. We've talked about California and obviously the, the more time that goes by, there's more regions that are growing in California, not only growing grapes, but growing in, in size. Sure. Are there any other regions in the United States that are really kind of exploding that maybe a lot of people don't know about? The Pacific Northwest is an exciting area. So Oregon, um, a lot of the French actually have, uh, bought or partnered for wineries up in Willamette Valley. So Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, it's a little bit cooler climate. It's not as hot as California. So it, it's kind of a nice transition. They do great. And then Washington State itself does some very nice work with other varietals as well, Cabernet, Merlot, Syrah, uh, et cetera. So I think the Pacific Northwest, in addition to obviously Napa, Sonoma and all that are, are super exciting areas. For somebody wanting to get into this business, you mentioned that first class, but if you could go back and do it over again, what order or what would you do as far as classes like first to last? So you have to start at an entry, entry level class, whether it was the one that I did, which was the Court of Master Sommelier or WSET or whatever organization, you have to start there and then just see if it's something you like. And if it doesn't, then you pivot and you do something else. Uh, if you like it, pursue it, read, talk to people, 
um, find your local wine shop, talk to knowledgeable people, surround yourself with them, and then progress accordingly. You know, just just keep on going and learning uh, and tasting. And uh, it's it's a passionate thing. Wine is a passionate endeavor. Um, and and honestly, I felt my old career I felt was I was very passionate about too. And I think these are two different careers that I think somehow translate in a way, you know, um, the stakes are significantly different, but, um, I had passion for both careers still do. And so I think if you follow your passion, uh, it'll guide you passion, like anything else, right? Passion and focus. It's really the name of the game. You know, if it's something where you get up in the morning and you're excited to go to work, you know, whether it's law enforcement or being the best damn uh, truck driver you can be or in the wine business, if you love it, uh, it doesn't feel like you're working. So, yeah. Are there specific schools that you can recommend? Yeah. So the one that I've really learned the most with was the Wine Spirits and Education Trust, WSET. And it's an England or a UK-based organization, and they have little chapters all over the place, including one in Orange County here, which is obviously where I learned, but they have LA uh, locations and that kind of a thing too. And so again, you have classroom and, and book and blind tasting and then, you know, darn homework, you know, kind of a thing. So <laughs> Go drink this bottle of wine. <laughs> exactly. And, and so that happens all the time. People come into the store, hey, I'm taking this WSET class. You know, uh, I know you've been through it before. Can you blind pick me out? Here's my budget. Pick out a case of wine for me. And then, uh, you know, so I can study it. And so that's that's what people do when they're into it. They form tasting groups uh, to further uh, their skills. Uh, and that's super beneficial too, you know, and, and um, just just following your, your passion in that regard. What's the cost of classes? You know, it depends on the class, but uh, let's let's say you're taking a, a ten week class. I don't think it's prohibitive. You have to pay for the wine as part of that. Let's call it a thousand dollars for 10, 10 weeks, going once a week, something like that, uh, which is well worth it. Um, and then obviously there's all the ancillary stuff if you're actually following up on your own and, and buying wines and that can add up, of course. Kind of along the lines of, you know, like lawyers where they have to have continuing education. Once you're in the industry, are you required to keep up with a certain number of classes every year or is simply just being on the job enough? Just being on the job is enough. And in fact, I find that it kind of precludes me from spending as much time studying as I'd like to. Um, if, if you're into it and you're doing a good job, then you're, it's more than a full-time job in a way. Um, so Yes, I probably should keep doing it, but the on-the-job education that I get every day is amazing. I have French winemakers, Italian, Spanish people who fly in just to see us. And, you know, if I'm curious about this this wine from Australia, say, hey, do you mind if I jump in? And then I'll taste a whole lineup of, of different wines and learn and talk to these people. And so uh, there's really, as, as you know, on-the-job experiences probably the most valuable. And so I get that on a continual basis, uh, which is great because you can get narrowly focused in your own thing. And it's, it's good to go, oh yeah, 
I haven't had the new release of this great one from California. Let's, let's see what that 2020 vintage tastes like or what have you. In wrapping it up, anything else you can, from the, I'm looking at it from the education standpoint, what somebody can do to better their knowledge. You mentioned some books, any books or last minute advice that you could give? So I did things like the wine Bible. Um, um, and let me just digress here a little bit. So social media is kind of a big deal too. You can actually learn a lot on social media too. Uh, some of these wine critics, they will actually walk the fields uh, and, and show themselves in a video and explain different things, you know, from the growing the grapes, the harvesting, the winemaking and stuff like that. So I think now people should also immerse themselves in social media for the purpose of learning as well. But, but yes, you know, the, there's, um, you know, heck, the, the wine Bible and anything uh, made by WSET, the Court of Master Psalm. There's all kinds of online courses. Um, uh, WSG, there's all kinds of fun stuff. And you just kind of keep on digging down that rabbit hole. But, but truly, it's, it's more of a function of letting your passion and focus take you and then just kind of follow that. Um, there's, there's so much now online that you, you could source. Uh, go to classes. Go to tastings at your local wine shop. Um, do a deep dive if it really interests you. Talk to people. Talk to people like me. Talk to people that you know in the business and then decide if it's something that's right for you and, and uh, maybe study with them. Maybe share a glass of wine with them and, and chat about it. Do you know of any specific YouTube channels off the top of your head that you could recommend? I don't, but if you, if you went to like some of the players, like some of these master Psalms, you'll find videos of them, you know, on there, sometimes from sour grapes, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but I don't really, you know, subscribe to any particular YouTube channels, but when I'm curious about something, if I'll Google it, maybe it'll take me to YouTube. Maybe it'll, you know, take me to an episode on Netflix or, you know, to a book or what have you, but, um, not a particular YouTube uh, channel. Well, I appreciate your time. I wish you all the continued success. So much. Appreciate that. Thank you for taking your time to listen to the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed it. Not only is the podcast available on audio platforms, but you can also watch it on YouTube at the Transition Drill Podcast channel. Please subscribe for future episodes. The best way you can help the show is by getting the word out. If you think somebody else might enjoy it, I would appreciate it if you would share it with them. Also, if you have the time, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a rating. I welcome your feedback, both positive and negative. You can also go to the website, transitiondrillpodcast.com, and through the contact tab, send a message directly to my email with any comments or suggestions. Thank you again, and I hope you tune in for the next one.